everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Tier 1 Podcast. Today on the show, I was lucky enough to be joined by Tammy, who I guess is an entrepreneur, really, but she owns the uh, vegan cafe just above Bangkok Fight Lab, and she's also a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu purple belt. She's a, a really good person to roll with. I had a really good fun time just working through different stuff and had a lot of back and forth, and it was... Um, good time to be at uh, Bangkok Fight Lab we had she does a uh, bagel bagel brunch stuff at the end of a end of a month and uh, makes these delicious bagels that I <laughs> couldn't get enough of really I'm kind of missing them right now I'm starving but enough about that um, all the links you need to other social uh, stuff will be in the description uh, I will link in the Nourish Cafe page as well uh, so go check that out and if you can head over to iTunes, leave a review or just a few stars. And as always, it's appreciated. So here's Tammy. Okay, Tammy, welcome to the Tier One podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so you've just been training today, and I've been resting, <laughs> stretching yeah. after. <laughs> so you've much had a much harder day than me so far. How was your session? Yeah, it was good actually. I I just this is my third class and session back since a week off from a back injury, which does happen fairly frequently. Well, it seems to happen roughly every six months. Mm. Um, it's just a lower back problem, but it. Oh, it's always the same one, is it? Yeah, I mean, I have other issues and other injuries too, but that one is sort of a recurring one that um, I can actually usually see it coming, like feel it coming, because mm. it starts with just kind of aching but not enough to stop me training i mean i probably should stop training and then it wouldn't happen <laughs> but i don't stop training and then something just like jars it and makes it actually kind of go and yeah. then i literally cannot walk upright for three or four days so i'm kind of confined i have to somehow find my way home and then like basically get you know find ways to get food and everything into my apartment and uh, i can usually just about crawl to the bathroom for three days oh, man. yeah and then um and then it just slowly eases up and yeah but usually i've never taken more than a week off and then by a week i'm fine and it's back to normal <laughs> yeah. so it's lovely to be back training again having just come off that yeah that yeah. is a big perspective change like yeah, oh, being, I, walk, being able to walk is nice <laughs> i know i know but the thing is i know it sounds a bit drastic but my sister has had some really serious back issues um and my dad so i think we might have a genetic weakness but my my sister once when she was 18 gave someone a piggyback and um slipped a disc and then had to have an operation for it and then about a year or two later slipped another one somehow i can't remember how the second one was done they wouldn't operate on her a second time so they just told her she had to like manage it for life and she does a very wow. good job of that but she has to be really careful and she once was coming out to see me in asia and um, wanted to be all fit and healthy and you know she knew she'd be bikini clad and um she overdid it exercising before she came out so she already knew that it was kind of a bit dodgy then when she came to see me we did some yoga she did quite a bit of walking then she got sick so she her back was already feeling pretty bad and she got sick and like then with throwing up she actually really threw it out like so badly and we were in chiang mai at the time she still it was towards the end of the holiday at that point but she then i had to leave to come back to me and uh, go back to Myanmar. i was living in Myanmar at the time and um her and her husband had to then go to hospital in chiang mai in order to get medication to get back on the plane to get to bangkok but then they had one night in bangkok 
which they had to spend in the hotel room with her in agony before they could get on the plane to go back to the UK. And on the on the plane on the UK, she was like having to lie on the floor in agony. Oh, the the, the, um, the uh, stewardesses were saying, if we'd known that you were this bad when you got on, we wouldn't have even let you fly. Wow. Um, but luckily, she, you know, she sort of did. So she, I mean, a horrible flight home, I'm sure. But then once she was home, she spent three months, I think, like in bed. I mean, really, really bad. It, having already gone through mm. something similar, like several yeah. years previous you know so and she's she writes an amazing she's a writer she's a journalist and she, she wrote an amazing blog about the kind of uh, the mental side of going through something like that um, and uh, so every time I have this back issue it, I, I, I deal with it pretty well because mm. I am always thinking of her and how much worse hers was right. <laughs> and I find it kind of hard to complain yeah. you know given that she's been through and kind of has to continuously kind of deal with this mm. issue um, so yeah, yeah. You know, did she ever go back to like um, to get like a scan or anything after they told her they wouldn't operate a second time yeah I mean, she, she's I think she's been back many times yeah. to like for things like that the, the first time it ever happened when she did the whole piggyback thing she didn't go to the doctor straight away um, she went to a chiropractor or an osteopath can't remember probably doesn't make right, much difference which oh some people will <laughs> say that it does but I don't believe it does um and uh, they started they didn't even recognize that she had a slip disc and they were like manipulating her and like you know I'm, I'm pretty convinced they made it a lot worse um, and they certainly didn't make it better so then eventually she did go to a doctor now of course she would know better and she wouldn't bother with any of that and she would go straight to the hospital but um, and of course the doctor immediately did the correct tests and x-rays and, and uh, diagnosed yeah. a, a, a herniated disc oh, wow. but yeah I, that was that is my warning to people who love these alternative um, ways of healing uh, you know more power to you if it works for you and you you, you know you, you want to do it and you know you believe in the effect of placebo if nothing else and that's fine but you've got to be careful when it's something serious oh, and, and it can yeah, yeah. be made a lot worse if you don't just go to a doctor yeah <laughs> did you guys get along well when you were growing up um when we when i the six years between me and my sister she's the youngest and i'm the eldest and oh, we okay. have two in between and oh, me, wow. and me and my brother were always very close because we're close in age um and then we have a handicapped sister after that after him and so you know she's obviously very special and different mm. and was at different schools like that special school she was born uh, with microcephaly which is a type of brain damage um but also she was born blind or at least they said she should be blind but actually she was just partially sighted so she could clearly sort of see something mm. um, and throughout her childhood she definitely could see colors and she could see shapes and you know she could even like really close up see writing big writing and stuff um but now she is fully blind like right. maybe about i don't know seven or eight years ago we noticed that she was no longer able to kind of sort cards of colors into mm. you know she'll always be mentally handicapped so she's about maybe the age of about seven or something it's hard to tell but she's 38 39 now um she's very happy though she's she's one of the happiest people i know she's she's lovely yeah um and then yeah so then my youngest sister um no i wouldn't say because she was that much younger and she was kind of um daddy's little girl <laughs> she um she was very cute you know and we 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 all got on generally but i wouldn't say that we were friends growing up right. she was my annoying little sister most of the time you know but then when she 
she actually came to my the school I was at. I just for a year I was in the um, senior school and she was in the mm. primary or prep school, whatever you call that. Um, and then we started getting on better because because I was sort of protecting, you know, the older protective right. sister. So from that point on, it's, it was it was different. And then of course when she became more of an adult, um, very different from the, from from her being sort of yeah sixteen. 16 pretty much 15 16 um maybe even younger then it was she's been my best friend right yeah, yeah those age, age differences are just a lot more pronounced when you're younger yeah, isn't it for sure and then yeah. yeah exactly the difference between six and 12 is, yeah you know huge, but the difference between yeah like maybe 18 and 24 is not not a lot yeah mm. yeah it's the same with my eldest brother who's eight years older than me like you know i wouldn't see a lot of him because he was either in, in high school and i was like in primary school and and then he moved out when he was 17 so i didn't you know most of my teenager didn't get to see him but then once uh, i was kind of an adult and go see him and stuff and then we're thick sleeves and stuff so, yeah exactly yeah. yeah it's cool it's good i mean it, we got a good grounding as kids in that we were always taught to get on you yeah know, it wasn't like we fought or we mm. hated each other at all you know always got on but but it, you know yeah there's definitely a distance there when you have that age gap yeah. and then that distance disappears as you get older for sure mm. no no i love her she's super talented she's an amazing person she she is responsible pretty much for turning me vegan <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah um, which has obviously now become a big part of my life um, and uh, yeah she is married to an amazing man who I am very grateful to have as my brother-in-law and yeah it's all great whereabouts did you grow up um, I was born in Surrey in the UK um, but we were only there for until I was about seven I think and then we moved to the Isle of Wight Okay. Well, my dad bought a big house. Um, my mum and dad bought a big house uh, to turn into a kind of sailing school, like a residential sailing school. Oh, cool. Yeah, my dad's uh, into yacht racing and stuff, mm. and um, he already ran a, a kind of annual week-long sailing camp for kids um, on a reservoir up in Surrey, um, and. He did that for like 30 odd years and then passed it on to my brother. My brother still runs that now over the Easter holidays. Um, but yeah, so they bought this big, crazy ex-hotel um, rumbling old mansion <laughs> on the on the waterfront in the Isle of Wight. Um, and they did run many sailing courses there for, for kids, um, maybe even a few for adults as well, I think, um, over the years. But when there weren't sailing courses on, it was like our house. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy. We had to, you know, we had the benefit of having this massive house with like upteen bedrooms and all this land and stuff, <laughs> most of the, or some of the time. But then the, the flip side was that, you know, some of the time it was overrun with strangers mm. <laughs> and we had to often give up our bedrooms and go right. and sleep in the attic. <laughs> right. But it was all fun. You know, yeah. Was, As a kid, was that kind of interesting having new people in the house all the time or was it just more of an annoyance? No, I never actually found it an annoyance. Yeah. I, I'm kind of, yeah, I, I, I guess we were just brought up to, we, we're good party hosts, you know, we, mm. we, we do that now a lot. Um, uh, all of us, my brother owns an amazing house with an orchard a um, couple of doors down. So he has crazy parties there right. my sister and her and her husband own this lovely house with you know some land by it and uh, they have great parties we've got had some olympic themed parties there and stuff. okay um so yeah we've always hosted people and yeah as kids no even i didn't even mind i don't seem to remember minding um giving up my bedroom um although sleeping in the attic did mean coming into contact with more spiders <laughs> which I didn't like <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it was a it, like it was an old house, so there, mm. was, there were definite spiders. But I, I, I actually my bedroom was the yeah. only one that my dad. I feel really bad about this because of my sibling, but um, it was the only one my dad ever got around to decorating properly. <laughs> so it was quite modern and nice, whereas the others were all quite old. My, my brother got the definitely the, the short end of the stick there, and uh, but he he went away to to boarding school a bit yeah. earlier than than us. So, uh, but yeah, we it was it was cool being able to just choose a room. You know, we we. Yeah. We were allowed to choose and swap rooms as much as we wanted. <laughs> That's interesting. Cool. Yeah. And did you learn to sail yourself? Or? Yeah, we, we all did learn to sail, but I have to say, um, none of us really took to competitive sailing the way that I'm sure my dad would have loved. Right. But I think he pushed us all into it a bit early. You know, it's the classic story mm. of, you know, you want your kids to, yeah. to do well. But um, yeah, so I actually pushed against it quite a lot. I think we all pushed against it quite a lot when we first started. Mm. Um, but we all did learn and then I also ended up you know knowing enough to be able to instruct or assistant instruct a little um, and my brother of course now runs the, the sailing school I mean that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to be a, a competitive sailor right. um, but he has a lot of knowledge of sailing and he uh, has a good team behind him and he just uh, is the principal you know he, yeah. he makes it uh, run and to be honest with you my dad's uh, ethos was less to do with actually teaching sailing and more to do with giving the children an experience which would help them grow mm. as people okay. and which is cool and that's what my brother has managed to continue on as well we do have children that come back year after year and get better and end up as competitive sailors and of course they're in the top groups and learn more about racing and uh, you know the tactics of racing and everything like that that's that's fine but they're catered for as well but, but certainly the kind of main thrust of the whole course is to just uh, give the beginners and yeah. the other kids the a experience. experience, yeah. And what did you want to be when you were growing up? Uh, what did I want to be when I was growing up? Um, at one point, I do remember me and a friend thinking that we would like to be interior designers, and I have no <laughs> idea where that even came from, but I just like remember thinking that. Well, with all those but, rooms to choose from. Oh, well, that's true, that's true. Well, <laughs> while we were at that school so I guess like that I mean at that house so it could have been something to do that but um no I, that, I think that was short-lived anyway and I don't really remember having much of a an opinion after that and I just kind of went with the flow mm. I wasn't very academic like I enjoyed school I really enjoyed school like a lot of people say they hated school worst time of their life like you know couldn't wait to get away I actually really enjoyed it um but not because I, oh, is that rain? Mm -hmm. um, not because I was good at it, <laughs> but more because I uh, had a lot of friends and was a bit naughty, and uh, but also managed to get away with a lot because I was polite to teachers, right. and so was forgiven a lot, <laughs> um, and just had a good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wasn't pushed by my parents to kind of succeed and do well. So I never felt the kind of stress and pressure that a lot of kids feel these days to mm. kind of achieve. Um, and I enjoyed classes because they were interactive and, you know, I, I was able to focus in classes and that was fine. But um, I just couldn't do homework. As soon as I was outside a classroom, I had no focus, no concentration at all. I mean, even when I tried, I just couldn't. Mm. Ooh, this is going to get loud. Yeah. You can maybe pause this and I'll mm -hmm. adjust your microphone a little bit. Let's see. Pause it now. Hold on. 
Okay, we're back. The rain's finished. We've uh, we've eaten. <laughs> Very full. <laughs> little pause, little break. Yeah. Um. So you were telling me, um, a bit, a bit about uh, what you wanted to be when you were growing up, and talking about high school and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, I think the reason why I started talking about how unacademic I was and how much I enjoyed school for the wrong reasons. Um, was because when it came to thinking about what I wanted to do, I thought I don't really need to decide this until, you know, I, I just assumed I would go to university. Mm. Um, but then when it actually came to that point of filling out the forms for university, as you get to the end of your sixth form years, um, I just couldn't be bothered to do it. <laughs> I was just so lazy. I was just like, this looks like a lot of work. <laughs> and um I decided to defer it, you know, I was like, oh, I'll just take a year out. You know, I heard that that was a thing. <laughs> take, yeah. take a year out and do it next year. And that just sounded like a kind of uh, good option. But then, of course, it never happened. I just never did it. Mm. Never went to university. But I went straight into the workplace and my first job was working in a bar. And I really, really, it was a bar in a health club. All right. Um, which is funny because it ended up not being the, the only health club that I ever worked in the bar or restaurant of. And um, I loved it. I really loved it. It was, I loved working behind a bar and I ended up working behind lots of bars, actual bars, like bars in bars, bars in restaurants. Yeah. Um, but it was even better being in a health club because you're sort of surrounded by, you know, I'd already started martial arts at that point. Or it was around the same time that I started martial arts. So um, I was started. I wasn't very sporty at school, but but as I left school at seventeen, eighteen, and got into martial arts, I sort of started enjoying other sports too. Because I kind you know, as you know, when you start doing martial arts, it's very um, interchangeable with other sports. You know, you can pick up other sports quite quickly because yeah. you're that much more body aware and. A little fitter maybe but it's more to do with proprioception i think and just yeah. like being able to use your body and so i i kind of just really enjoyed um taking up various things mm. um so that was yeah that was cool um what was your um there. your first martial art um my very first martial art was taekwondo okay um which i think i did for maybe just under a year um and what, it, what drew you to that well i just wanted to do what a martial art i mm. didn't really know much about any of them and um is it like a friend that no I, just, I think just... it was a local i just saw an ad or something i don't know i think there was just a guy teaching it locally yeah. and it just sort of and you know because i was living cool. at my mum's place by that point which was um, not exactly like country countryside but it was out of the city and, mm -hmm. and even out of the town so there wasn't much option is my point it wasn't like i could pick and choose yeah you know but there happened to be a little taekwondo school in the village next to us and um it was cool. Like, I was a, a, a smoker at that point. I, I mean, I started smoking pretty young mm. and um, was not very fit and healthy. Like I said, didn't do much sport at school, didn't enjoy it. Um, and so uh, <laughs> I uh, found exercising at that level quite difficult <laughs> to begin right. with. <laughs> um, but, you know, you soon get used to it. But uh, yeah, I, so I did eight, eight months of that. Um, but it was quite expensive, I think. Like, you had to buy the kit, obviously, you had to buy the uniform and everything. You also had to buy insurance. Mm. Like, you had to pay the, the instructor, like, annual insurance. And then I think you had to pay for each grading. And not that I ever got graded, because I don't think I did it long enough. But um, And it was only an hour class, and half an hour of that was just fitness. Mm. And then there was half an hour of sort of carters. And um, that was all I knew, so I just did it, and it was fine, and it was fun. It was fun you know kicking and punching air <laughs> um 
But then a friend of mine, very good friend of mine, I mean, my best friend at the time, he had started Wing Chun around the same time. And then we went on a snowboarding holiday together and I was sort of telling him a bit about my Taekwondo and he was showing me some Wing Chun. And then we made a deal while we were on holiday that when we got back, I would go to one of his classes and he would come to one of mine. And then got home and I went to one of his classes and never went back to Taekwondo. Because, I mean, there was lots of reasons. I mean, one was the fact that I got to train with my friend, you know, so it was fun and it was, you know, that was one thing. The other thing was that it was a two-hour class. There was no fitness involved, you know. You were expected to do that stuff on your own. So it was two hours of technique. And it was way cheaper and there was no uniform and there was no insurance. So it was like five pounds a class for two hours and that was all technique. And because I was with my friend and we mucked about kind of practice a lot, we got a lot better than a lot of other people quickly because yeah. then we would um, train together outside of class and we were big stoners at that point. So, you know, training in random places in uh, flats and forests and fields and all kinds of places, parks. Um, and then my brother, who was in our kind of group and uh, two friends of ours as well, they all started Tai Chi. Hmm. So those three guys would all go to Tai Chi. Me and Rich would go to, to Wing Chun and then we'd all meet up, get stoned and, <laughs> and practice. And, um, you know, it was really cool. It became a big part of my life. We just, you know, when you feel progression in something, it's kind yeah. of addictive. That's why a lot of people get so addicted to BJJ because the progression is so quick, I think. Hmm. Um, and um, then uh, we were lucky enough to be in a period of our lives where we hadn't got a proper job yet, we didn't have girlfriend, boyfriend, we didn't have kids, we didn't have any responsibilities and uh, we had very um, generous mothers or parents who uh, allowed us to go off to Hong Kong and train Wing Chun out there ah, um, cool. which was really cool I had a godmother living there so she had a little uh, like apartment a kind of beachside apartment on one of the islands which she wasn't really using it was like her kind of holiday getaway yeah so we just lived there and we like paid her nominal rent and yeah. uh, went from the island into Hong Kong. I'm so glad we weren't living in Hong Kong City. I'm not sure I could have stood it for as long as we stayed there because mm. it's, you know, pretty, it's like any city, you know, <laughs> polluted and traffic and noise and everything else. Um, but this was lovely. We got to go out every day onto the one of the cleanest beaches in Hong Kong at the time as well. And we kind of got part-time jobs in bars and stuff to help fund it. But I, you know, I have to give credit to our parents who definitely were helping us. Certainly, they helped us get out there. Yeah. Likewise. Um, how how old were you at the time? Um, Nineteen. He had actually gone out there already for one stint, so he was already familiar with everything. And then and then, uh, but I think just for a couple of weeks or something. Mm. And then I would have been about nineteen, I think, and he's like a year older than me. So, um, and then we went for six and a half months the first time, and we were training with Grandmaster It. Ching, who is it man's youngest son okay well. um, so it was pretty cool we were yeah, going yeah. around his apartment for private classes and going to the, the Wing Chun Athletic Association for um, class, uh, group classes um, but yeah we were lucky enough to be doing privates with him and the translator um, it was super cool man I mean we loved Wing Chun so we yeah. were bang into it and we were like you know we were in the place where it kind of not necessarily began but where you know Ip Ching uh, sorry, where it man, you know, came over to Hong Kong and started everything, and 
we were training on the same dummy that Bruce Lee trained on, wow. you know, and all that. It was kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, we felt very lucky and we enjoyed that time a lot. And then came home, did the usual kind of like landing back into part-time bar jobs and stuff. And then we went out a second time. I can't actually remember whether it was the first time or the second time where I had the idea to start a bar, start my, because my first business was this kind of nightclub in London. Um, and the original idea was that it was going to be uh, a martial arts themed bar <laughs> to some extent, um, where there would be classes as well, not just themed, you know, in a kind of tacky way, but where we would have, be able to teach and because we both ended up with our kind of teaching certificate in Wing Chun by the time we left the second trip um, for all that's worth. I mean, it's actually, it expires after a year anyway, and I never even used it. And I certainly didn't feel like I was actually at the level where I could teach, but you know, you know, you, you know all the forms, you know, you know, enough to teach beginners. Yeah. Um, it must've been the second time, I guess, because um, then when we got back, I did, it took a few years actually of kind of planning, business planning, and also meeting my then partner who I ended up doing it with. So, um, I just, in another part-time bar job, was working for him. He was my manager. And um, then we ended up getting together and, and I told him that my dream was to open this this bar. And I'd already found this crazy spot, this old, it was, it was old public toilets, but it had been built for the 1908, um, like, World Fair in Shepherd's Bush. Um, and it was underneath the green in Shepherd's Bush, which is basically like a big roundabout, essentially. Um, and it was an old snooker club uh, when, when, when we found it. Uh, really dingy, like super dingy, like yeah. underground. I mean, old public toilets that had been turned into a snooker club uh, run by these Egyptian guys. Wasn't doing very well, clearly. And I knew it would be perfect. And when I spoke to the owner one time, he, he said he'd just put it on the market. Um, <laughs> but however, it was another four years that I, before we actually got around to buying it. Oh, wow. Um, and by in that time, I had then met Colin um, and he also wanted to do something like that. I mean, he had been at um, art school as, um, you know, he was a really good graphic designer. He was a music producer. Uh, he used to run parties at his university in Stoke. And so it was kind of a perfect fit. He was obviously already had managerial experience in the bar industry. And so it was really good. Like, there's no way I would have actually been able to do it without him, to be honest, like in hindsight. Mm. Um, regardless of the fact that it, it was helpful because he put in, we both put in some money, which it was then enough for a bank to kind of double. Um, but if it was just me on my own, that would have been more difficult too. Yeah. So, you know, these things happen. They just like, so all pieces fit together. And, um, and then we ran that nightclub in, in London for 11 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so it did okay then, I guess. So yes, yeah. but this is the thing. It, we so the original idea was obviously that it was this martial arts themed bar. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Colin didn't do martial arts. You know, his his life was all art and music. And um, very quickly, it, luckily, a week before we actually opened, uh, we discussed it and we were just like, "This is a stupid idea having martial arts involved." You know, we can maybe like add that on at a later point, but we need to do what it takes to actually make money and that's not going to make us money yeah and so we just went with the music thing so we were kind of like a nightclub at weekends but then we would have live music as well um mm -hmm. during the week and we ended up doing comedy nights really good stand-up comedy nights as well um 
And so we just had to do things like that, which just got more people in. And you know, even that is a struggle. You know, when I when I hear people say that they they would love to run somewhere like that, or they've got an idea, and it's like, I just don't know how many people really appreciate like how much work goes into getting people through a door night after night after night after night. Um, I mean, we had to have promoters, like other promoters, outside promoters that would come and just take on monthly nights. Yeah. And you know, you know, they found it a struggle just to get people into a monthly night. You know, but. Right. But having said that, we did have plenty of successful nights. We wouldn't have lasted 11 years if we didn't. Mm. And our promoters were generally really good. And if they weren't good, they didn't last long. And the ones that were with us for years, you know, did a really good job. And so, you know, it was a great little place. And uh, lots of fun was had over those years. Uh, lots of stress too, because it was underground and we flooded every year. Oh, <laughs> which we didn't know when we took the property on. Funny, because looking back, I remember going down there once before we bought it, before we, I think we were still in negotiation period, but we hadn't actually like exchanged money and keys at that point. And it was flooding. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is not good. And the guy, the manager there was just sort of sweeping out. I mean, it wasn't as bad as the floods we had to deal with later. They generally got worse every year, but it wasn't great. And I remember thinking, oh, this is not good. And he, he just somehow managed to convince me that it was just like this one off, like there was a problem with a drain or something. And so I kind of just didn't think about it. And it wasn't until we'd then exchanged, got the keys. And almost a year later, because of the weather pattern, yeah. that we had to then deal with it. And then when we first had our first flood, we were like, oh, right, yeah, this is what happens here. Wow. You know, and it, uh, it was quite traumatic, I have to say. One, one particularly bad one, which was like thigh deep. Mm. And, you know, you're in an underground club and this isn't, it is rainwater, but it's rainwater that's gone down the drains and then backed up. So it's come up through the drains. Right. Um, and luckily, I'm pretty sure every single time it happened, it was always during the day when we weren't open because we didn't open during the day, we were open at night. Um, so there was no like actual kind of uh, waste, <laughs> but still dirty water, still yeah. filthy water. And you do not want to have to be dealing with that. Um, and the first time we actually were insured, but we weren't insured enough because we just bought a load of secondhand sound equipment all these big speakers that were sitting on the floor all oh, right yeah and um, even though they were cheap to buy for us they were worth a lot of money to replace mm. and we hadn't added them to our insurance policy so when it came to listing everything that we'd lost in that first big flood um we i think lost about thirty-five thousand pounds uh which was quite you know it was a hard a struggle it was a, a difficult business to run anyway yeah. so that was quite um yeah, quite bad. Uh, and then, of course, we they wouldn't insure us after that. <laughs> um, so then we weren't insured and we had to just deal with each flood as it came. But of course, then we didn't put speakers on the floor and we didn't put stock on the floor and we didn't, you know, we kind of like learned a procedure of how to deal with it. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm going off tangent. Sorry. Yeah. Did you, do you have any memorable um, nights in particular? Like, Yes, I do. I can like pick a few out, definitely. Like uh, we had a Japanese theremin orchestra. <laughs> what <It> is that? <laughs> crazy. Like I think there was about, um, there was this main guy, then he had sort of one main woman and then there was about another 10, if not more people. So a good like 12 minimum and it may have even been more than that. I can't quite remember. I just know they took up like our stage plus more space and they all had their theremin. And do you know what theremin is? No idea. Oh, okay, cool. So it's this crazy instrument that's like, um, 
oh god i wish i could explain how it actually works but it's, it gives a really weird ethereal noise and you use your hand to, to as you bring your hand closer to the kind of uh instrument it's like oh, how do i describe it uh, I can't even think of any music that has it because it's so weird and it's so difficult to actually make music with it because it's kind of random. You need to know exactly where to like put your hand right? because you're not touching anything. Yeah. It's just in the air. It's like okay. using yeah. sound waves or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like an idiot because I don't know actually how it works, but um, I'm sure at least someone who listens to this will know what it is. <laughs> um, but it's a very odd noise. Like it doesn't sound like any other instrument that you know. Um, which is why it's not that common because it just sounds yeah. so weird <laughs> um, but that was quite a, a thing like they, they were all suited up you know they were all like they were, it was like a proper orchestra but they were all playing these really <laughs> weird instruments and then they would play songs that you would recognise you know but you're just oh, right, using yeah, these yeah. theremin um, you'll have to google it yeah, afterwards so you can hear uh, so that was definitely a memorable night because it was also packed full of people so it was a really weird atmosphere because everyone felt quite privileged to be there listening to this weird night of music yeah um, another very uh, memorable night was when one of our comedy nights when we had um, we already had Lenny Henry who's pretty big in the UK and uh, Adam Hills who's now a very famous Aussie comic so they were already on the bill i can't remember who else was on the bill but um and then we got word from our promoter our booker who booked our acts that we were going to have a surprise guest that we weren't supposed to tell anyone about and it was robin williams no that yeah it was pretty cool um and uh we were already quite sold i think we were almost pretty much sold out anyway because of lenny henry but we had a few seats left so we, we stopped taking bookings and we just called some of our friends and family and we were like get to the club tonight you want to be here for this um, so yeah just a few key people that were like you need to be here um, and then I think we didn't tell them who, who it was or yeah. why we were just like come uh, and then yeah he he wasn't he didn't even headline I think he he was on like second to last I remember Adam Hills had to headline and he was like how the hell do I you know follow, follow that but actually he did a really good job of following it and of course you know he's gone on to like bigger things so he's clearly a very competent comedian so it was fine um, but he did do a great set as well you awesome know. you can sometimes be disappointed you think someone's huge and then you're like you know they're just doing a little test set somewhere and it could yeah. just be you know, new material that doesn't really work or whatever it's not polished but actually he was just so professional so good and so um experienced that uh it went really well yeah so that was another memorable one mm. and then music wise i mean we 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 had a great night called the big secret run by a friend amity and uh she had great connections in the music industry and a lot of the people that she had on her night um went on to be pretty big um so that was a the, that those were cool nights, and then plenty of other like DJ nights. I mean, God, you, you, actually, to the memories are coming up, but it would be ridiculous for me to list them all. You know. Yeah. Yeah. What did you cool. learn from your eleven years working at this? Uh, oh, no, yeah, running this um, first. That it's unfortunate that people don't seem to be able to take responsibility for their own actions when they get drunk and come to a nightclub. Mm. Because what really kind of put the nail in the coffin for us and made us want to close and couldn't deal with it anymore was because uh, we were sued four times while we were open. 
Um, first one was just a few years in because some guy kind of like twisted his ankle coming in down our steps. And apparently because we didn't have a kind of flat base as the last step before you came in the club, it was a kind of drain there that uh, he didn't see. Uh, so that was our fault. So we had to pay out for that. Then somebody dancing on the stage, like went through a curtain drunkenly and pushed a speaker off a stack in onto someone's foot and again you know we had to take responsibility for that which was fair enough because those speakers should have been all strapped together or there should have been sign or whatever even though this guy was standing backstage in a kind of like staff only area mm. but still um paid out for that and then so those were quite far apart like that would happen like in year one or two and then year like five or six but then in year 10 or 11 like in a, just literally months before we closed two girls at different times different nights no relation nothing you know nothing that, that, that uh, tied them together at all both did pretty much the same thing where they drunkenly fell onto glass and cut themselves and then um, quite badly cut themselves. Mm. Weirdly, both of them on their wrist. Mm. So so co coincidental, but yeah. Um, and the first girl sued us, and then we the the adjuster said uh, came around and said, no, no, that's not your fault. You're not going to have to pay out for that. That's kind of crazy. People have to take responsibility. Blah blah blah. Um, you know, you've got enough things in place, you had staff clear it up, you've got a procedure, you know, you've got security looking out for these things. The glass probably was only literally just broken, so you can't be expected to literally catch glass as it falls from someone's yeah. hand. And not. Uh, but the second one, she, th there was a glass on the stage and she was so, so off her face that she kind of danced through the barrier onto the stage, broke the glass and cut herself, didn't even know what she'd done. So one of my staff said, um, oh, the, there's a trail of blood like from the stage all the way to the ladies' toilets. Do you want to go and check it out? And I went into the ladies' toilets following this trail of blood. And then she would locked herself in the loo and wouldn't let us in. And um, eventually, I think we sort of either climbed over or, or convinced her to unlock the door. And when I opened the door, it was like something out of a horror movie there was just blood everywhere and she was sort of half sitting in the loo like drunk she was like i don't know what i've done and you couldn't see where the blood was coming from because there was so much of it um but i kind of got her over to the sink to kind of wash some of it off to see where it was coming from and then realized it was coming from a cut on her arm and um she couldn't even remember what had happened and then her boyfriend came in and was sort of and they seemed to be really nice and we were helping them and we you know, trying to work out what had happened and then got, got the ambulance and everything. And we thought we'd got away with that one. Like, you know, um, but no, she sued us too. <laughs> People just like, you know, as soon as someone says, oh, you know what? That wasn't your fault. You should sue them for that. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they call up one of those terrible companies that does those, uh, what are they called? Those insurance companies that just do... Um, no win, no clean. Yeah, sort of thing. exactly. Yeah. So it's like you know, may as well. It's not going to yeah. lose anything by doing it. Um, and yeah, so when the adjuster came round to assess for that first one, I had to tell him. By the way, you don't know this yet, but it happened again last week with a different girl. And you know, does that mean that we are liable because it's happened twice? And he assured me. He said, "No, you still aren't. It's just coincidence." You know, I I, I would say the same thing that you've got everything in place, you know, enough staff mm. and a procedure. However, 
Then I find out a few months later that the insurance company just paid out for that first one anyway, um, <laughs> without even giving me a chance to kind of like uh, dispute it or say I wanted to go to court about it or anything. So then having done that, knowing that probably the same thing would happen with the second one as well, I was just like, no, screw this, let's let's close. And we just decided, I mean, that was only the nail in the coffin. There were many other reasons, you know. It was becoming harder and harder to run. We were getting more and more violent incidents, more and more aggression at the door. You know, it was just becoming a real headache, you know, because we, we were kind of a members only place. It wasn't a paid membership, but it was a, a way to kind of sort the wheat from the chaff and yeah. keep out the people we didn't want in there, the troublemakers generally. So for a good 10 years, we had relatively few problems. But then in that last year, it just seemed to like keep coming. I don't know what was going on like locally, but we just seemed to have way more incidents. And, uh, you know, with each one of those incidents, Carrie comes like a risk to your staff, you know, um, a risk that you're going to get sued, that some incident is going to happen. Um, police attention, just generally like headaches. Yeah. And so, yeah, in the end, we just thought... Stuff you don't want to be dealing with. Yeah. And during this time, did you continue with martial arts? Or were so, no. Too busy? I, I, um, to begin with, I was way too busy. I literally was. I just couldn't yeah. have done anything. Then there was a point where I could have, but I was kind of out of the loop and didn't really. And then I kind of kept my hand in here and there, like little bits, but not much. And then for the last two years uh, of running the club, I did, I went back to Wing Chun. And by this point, my friend who I'd trained with back in Hong Kong had been teaching all that time uh, and was like amazing yeah. and a great teacher. And he's also a swimming teacher and like, you know, a natural teacher. And um, I just joined his classes as his student. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. it was really cool. It was really cool. And actually I'll continue that story slightly because then while doing Wing Chun, I really got back into it, just generally into martial arts and like, you know, was loving it. But was still kind of feeling a little frustrated with the whole Kung Fu thing, the way that you, it's really difficult to test it realistically because mm. you don't want to go punching your friends yeah. in the face. And, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was lacking something, something was missing, you know, like when you, when you play fight with your friends, like especially guys, you're always going to end up pinned down to the floor, mm. you know, and as a girl, that's super frustrating or anyone like smaller, you yeah. know. Um, and I just wanted to have something that would like complement Wing Chun. And I, I obviously we had been UFC fans, you know, from the beginning, not that I had followed it much in the kind of interim, but I just got back into kind of watching it again. And um, I just saw a friend of mine that we were training with was just like, oh, you should try BJJ, you know, try Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And uh, and uh, said that there was a club really close to where I lived. And so then I was like, well, there's no excuse. <laughs> so I went along to Carlson Gracie in Hammersmith and uh, did a kind of free trial class and absolutely loved it. From, yeah. From just first class, like luckily I was paired with a brown belt. So, you know, I wasn't with some spacky mm. white belt and it was difficult. It was just like everything was easy. Um, just really, really enjoyed it, like loved it. And then, um, started I, I couldn't afford to kind of be a, an actual member there because the way their membership works it's kind of to really encourage you to train as much as possible so right. it's quite expensive it's it's perfectly reasonable if you're going to be someone who trains like three four five times a week yeah. but if you can only go once a week which i could at the time um then it's not worth it you know so i found a loophole though i realized they did private classes and if you 
took a, you could do like a double private class, like take a friend mm -hmm. for the same price, which meant you paid half. Okay. And uh, I knew some of the guys I did Wing Chun with would be happy to come along and do that with me. So some of them did. Various ones I took along, but actually two of them really stuck. One of them being the teacher, Rich, my friend from, from Wing Chun. Mm -hmm. So he, he um, came along to a few and then joined that club as a full-on member and has been training like a nutter ever since and he's he got his blue belt super quick then purple so he's now purple working for his brown and then another friend of ours ashley who um also just joined and really got into it and uh just it's just awesome that we mm. all kind of started that journey together also yeah um i'm not sure whether they kind of still do wing chun together or not i know which still does do, do some wing chun privates but i'm not sure whether ash is still training wing chun. um but yeah so now i love it because I, I kind of obviously left that club because i came abroad and i didn't really intend to stay abroad i was going to go back and like continue training with them um but actually it's quite a hardcore competitive gym Carlson Gracie and I don't know whether I, whether I would have really enjoyed fitting or maybe I would just be better at jiu-jitsu if I stayed there but um, it, I, I like the way I train you know and I like this gym and I like kind of everything being a little more playful and like yeah. less um, hardcore I mean I end up with enough injuries as it is mm. but every uh, for the first few years of going back to the UK I would go and drop in at Carlson's to train with Rich and Ash and anyone else and I just always found it like quite stressful like you know the girls will go really hard and you know you're it's quite serious there's there's not much kind of laughing and playing around it's like regimented you know it's quite strict and right. you line up you get paired off you know it's okay. um, I mean, I'm sure if you're a member there and you're there all the time, and you know everyone. It's it's a bit more easygoing, but it always yeah. felt a bit kind of like uh, not really my my kind of gym. So now I tend to not really go back there much. When I go back, I, I have a lovely little gym that I train at um, nearby where my sister lives. Um, I mean, they're all MMA guys, so it's it's not easy. It's <laughs> it's rough, but they are super friendly. They're super friendly and nice, and it's very very relaxed. Like Lee Remedios, the guy who runs it, is you know, it's it's not at all regimented and kind of a. Except you do get punished if you swear on the mats, <laughs> but that's kind of like a jokey way for them to like catch you out and give you press ups. Um, and then sometimes if I do, I'm in London, I want to train, I'll go to Wave BJJ, which is, you may have met Richard Kerrigan, the brown yeah. belt, when he comes here. So um, he yeah. teaches there sometimes. Yeah. So I went there and that's a really friendly, lovely club. So, um, yeah. And um, you said uh, you had a trip out to Asia and tell me about that. What prompted that? Um, I had hip operations and I was on my second one uh, it's just a congenital hip dysplasia um, mm -hmm. that had just got gradually worse throughout my years and uh, this operation was supposed to kind of postpone hip, total hip replacement it won't prevent it but um, pro postpone it by 10 20 years um, and so I was recovering from the second one of those and uh, my dad was living in Malaysia in Langkawi and I uh, wanted to kind of, I knew he'd be <laughs> rumbling thunder, a <laughs> rainy season in Thailand. Um, I knew he wanted to repatriate back to the UK soon. And so I thought, well, now's a good time to quick catch him. And like, uh, I'd obviously finished the business um, yeah. with Colin. And so was looking for, I'd trained up as a um, PT. Uh, personal trainer in that time just so I had something to fall back on right so, but kind of I guess I was intending to go and travel for six months or not really travel but stay with my dad and kind of 
be in Asia. Yeah. Um, do some sailing because he had a boat um, <coughs> and recuperate from my uh, hip operation and then go back to the UK and kind of try to be a personal trainer somehow mm. and go back to jujitsu and everything else. Um, but man, the weather out here is too good. <laughs> when, I, when I came about four months in and I had to start thinking about, you know, going home, I just didn't want to do it. Mm. I thought, what am I even going back to? You know, I'm going back to like starting again, struggle. Just didn't want to do it. Wanted to stay out here and like uh, we'd gone to Myanmar for a sailing event that my dad was doing and I had volunteered for. And uh, we'd been over on, on the coast of Myanmar, which is people say it's a bit like Thailand was 50 years ago or okay. 30 years yeah. ago. So really unspoiled coastline, like no advertising hoardings, no mm. hawkers, no barely anything really not even really any hotels um beautiful sandy beaches and that's where the sailing event was and I, that was my first you know my first experience of Myanmar was three weeks over there you know at the sailing event and it was uh, I kind of fell in love with the country had a couple of nights in Yangon the main city on the way back and um got wined and dined by a few uh, locals so really saw the best side of Yangon and everyone I spoke to who lived there was uh, really interesting and entrepreneurial and it seemed like an exciting place to be and like, you know, things could happen there. And um, I guess like I kind of by that point had come to the conclusion that I was only fit to run nightclubs. <laughs> that was all, like, all I could do. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll open a nightclub here <laughs> in Myanmar. Um, so glad I didn't do that. <laughs> so glad I didn't do that. But um, yeah, it was a real headache. Even the locals that run the clubs there, you know, you can be shut down like any day. You have one fight in your place, the police will come and just close you down. Like, right, you can't wow. argue with it, you know. Um, but for a while, so my, my dad had a friend um, who runs a law firm. He's another international judge, yacht racing judge. And um, he was running a law firm based in Bangkok, but they had a kind of branch in Myanmar, in, in uh, Yangon, with a Burmese lady, very well-respected um, lawyer there. And they really needed a office manager. And so I asked if it was possible that maybe I could have that job and, and so that I could be in Myanmar. But I did tell them, you know, it was a means to an end because I, I would want to start some kind of business there. Mm -hmm. And he's just super supportive, this guy. This friend of my dad's like, very not like a lawyer that you might imagine, you know, or like, like uh, we are all led to believe that lawyers are like, you know, not at all like that, like just, very altruistic always trying to help people like just really lovely lovely guy and uh i'd met his one of his daughters at that point and got, get on really well with her and um so anyway i went over to Myanmar and um and uh did this office manager job in a law firm i mean you wouldn't even it's so funny because in england you need a law degree to even be a secretary in a law firm oh really yeah like uh -huh. you can't even kind of walk, work in a firm without a degree at least and i think you probably to be a legal secretary at least you definitely need a legal degree yeah um and i don't even have a degree i mean i've right. probably been school but you know he realized that my business experience would be helpful in an office manager position because it's really just about getting stuff done right and yeah. kind of answering the phone and being polite to just the clients and stuff 
So it was fine. I kind of enjoyed it to begin with because it was different and it was also really nice just being back in a stable job where I just got paid and like, right. you know, benefits. They'd fly me to Bangkok every month to do uh, my visa run. Oh, nice. And uh, I'd come over and have a few extra days and do jujitsu here. Right. So it was perfect. What, what uh, year was this, by the way? 2014. Okay. Yeah. And um, I was kind of loving it to begin with, but then just a desk job takes its toll mm. and uh, also trying to implement things you know in a workplace because you want to do your job well and you want to kind of get things done and progress and kind of make your mark and make sure that you're you know doing your job is really difficult when you're not the one that can make all the decisions you know I, I was used to being my own boss running right. my own country yeah. co country <laughs> Ooh, slip of the tongue no company not yet yeah not yet um, but okay of course I ran it with my partner but we actually always pretty much always agreed on business and um, but of course if I had an idea run it past him but that was never really a problem you know we would just discuss stuff and then get it done um, but yeah, this was just frustrating, man. Every time I wanted to do something, having to be like, you know, could I maybe try to do mm. this? And then having them sort of be like, oh, I don't know if that's going to work or okay, try. But then no one really getting on board with it. And like, you know, even just trying to get them to use Google Calendar. <laughs> I couldn't get them to use Google Calendar. And it's like so frustrating. Um, so anyway, all that kind of stuff took its toll. But towards the end of that time, um, I uh, had met these this couple, Jojo and Jerome who were also living in Myanmar in the same kind of ad hoc, like, oh, we just thought we would try it and see if we could like start a business. They both came from cor corporate. Um, he was a banker and she was in corporate HR in London, right. even though she's American and he's um, French. Um, and so they were moving. I wanted to bring a container over because I really was like, okay, I am moving to Myanmar. So I, want, I need some of my stuff, you know, and I was looking into shipping a container over. Um, and uh, they saw a post that I'd put somewhere and they were like, oh, we, we, we're coming over from London. We, do you want to share a container? So all our kind of initial stuff was all just like emails about this, like sharing this container, which is quite an interesting thing to have to do, <laughs> by the way. A lot of uh, odd admin involved, customs and tax forms and everything. Um, but then they came over for a kind of recce trip and we met and we just got on like a house on fire like we've you know been really good friends ever since and they are now my business partners over there uh, but yeah so at the time um they were doing what were they doing they were doing some consulting stuff and thing but like looking for what business they were going to run and she was a yoga teacher newly qualified yoga teacher and uh, this apartment that i had with, with this job was awesome it was like three bedrooms and um, we turned the apartment basically into a kind of gym where we were doing bjj <laughs> and uh, yoga and we were people were coming in for classes that got us in some trouble <laughs> but yeah, yeah that didn't last we did that for a bit but then we had people knocking on the door uh, the, the neighbors the uh, the landlord was downstairs she wasn't happy uh and in the end that kind of all came to an end but it was also the push that jojo and jerome needed to start a studio so they started a yoga studio Studio. Mm. That was their first business, and then we moved the BJJ there. So we were we were running BJJ Myanmar um, from their yoga studio to begin with, and um, yeah, that kind of all progressed. Can't remember where I was for that or why, why I was being. Oh, it's kind of telling the story and running running through it. Yeah. So how how long was it till you opened up um, 
your first. What is the what is it called when you have in, in Myanmar? Oh, I know where. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I know why I was going there because towards the end of me working for this law firm, the three of us, me, Jojo, and Jerome, decided to start a company because the thing is, you can't be there without. Um, a company to kind of sponsor you. It's not the same as having a work permit here. Mm. Um, they're kind of bringing that in now, but there was it was more that you had to have a a, a, a letter, you know, from a an established company that would allow you to then come in and work. And so we needed to set up our own company. And the okay. great thing about that was that I was working for a law firm. Right. <laughs> and they very kindly did it like um, gratis. Yeah. And uh, I did some of the paperwork myself, but also one of the lawyers at the firm, a friend of ours, Dutrat, did a lot of it too, which was great. And so it didn't cost us anything. And that saved us like a bunch of money. Yeah. And then that meant that we could just run businesses and do our own thing there. So that's, yeah, so that's then what we did. So, yeah. so that's where I got, I sort of then I kind of jumped a bit to the yoga studio, but that was what allowed them to open the yoga, yoga studio right. because we then had a company. Yeah. Yeah. And then how long was it before, well, after the yoga studio opened that you wanted to do a, a vegan cafe? Oh, when, oh yeah, uh, so then so then I had a few years there of kind of doing various things like personal training and, mm. you know, other things. Um, um, had a boyfriend there for a bit that I lived with in a different part of Yangon, which is a little bit further out, um, but was kind of doing some fitness classes and things. But yeah, looking for what business idea to do, we were kind of looking into the coconut business and we were thinking of stuff. Um, but nothing was really presenting itself. Um, and I was just doing, you know, running the BJJ kind of voluntarily. I mean, I wasn't making money out of that. But, yeah. um, and I was still living off money that I had um, had from the previous business or rather we didn't really walk away from that business with money. But during the time that I had those businesses, I had invested in apartments in London with my sister. Right. And so at that point we had sold those. And so I had the money left okay. from those. So yeah. I had some money, so it wasn't kind of, but then I hadn't really spent any of that because I've been working for the law firm and being yeah. paid. So I was in a very fortunate position of not having to have like a full-time job while I kind of looked for um, another business to run. Um, and uh, then I actually did decide to leave Myanmar. I wanted to come and live in Bangkok because I've been coming to Bangkok for visa runs and doing jujitsu. Mm. And, you know, Morgan's gym was like, there was black belts here, there was more students, you know, there was bigger mat space. I was just, you know, felt like more like Carlson's where I started, you know, just like right. bigger, bigger gym. And, um, and how did you meet Morgan? How did well, because he, because I had, had been training with Bangkok BJJ, which was kind of a, uh, the first incantation, I think. I don't know, I'm actually going to start a website with the history of BJJ in Thailand because there is a few things where I'm personally, even though I've been here for six years, I'm still not connecting some of the dots. Mm. And I'd really like to know exactly kind of what the timeline was. I know a lot of the main people that were involved, but the kind of timeline is still confusing as to like who was here when and who started what. And I just want to give the right people the right credit, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, as far as I was concerned, there was a guy called Luke, um, Satori, I think his surname is, um, who was a brown belt and had started this uh, little gym that was in Plonchit. Um, and I, I, that wasn't the first place that they had been either. It was just when I joined them, that's mm. where they were. Um, and Morgan was apparently here, but I didn't meet him at that point. But I did mark meet his future business partner, Mark Zimmerman. So I was training with him there. And, um, you know, we were talking about other gyms, opening other gyms and Myanmar and me starting there. And um, and he then sort of at one point just let on, he was like, don't tell anyone yet, but we are opening <laughs> a new flashy new gym here. And 
so it was him financially it was him morgan and a guy oh and tien who who you know uh the thai partner here and then also another guy an english guy who was running a fitness gym uh in this shopping center and they were going to open a the fight lab uh one floor up like above the fitness gym and they were going to kind of swallow Bangkok BJJ. So they kind of bought the name from Luke and they kind of like to, you know, took yeah. those students on. And uh, so I was kind of, I'd already been with them and then went to the new place. And uh, I was actually in Myanmar when they opened. I couldn't be there at the at the very opening. I think I went to some kind of opening do, but it was like after they'd already opened. And um, I didn't like it from the, from what I, from what I was seeing online, because I was in Myanmar. It's like, oh, I like the kind of rough, you know, no aircon, up in some loft somewhere, you know, it's kind of small, yeah. there's a pillar in the middle, <laughs> you know, it was all kind of, um, you know, like a garage uh, gym. Pretty was, polished, you know. yeah, really, style. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and then this place opened and it just looked so flashy from the photos. It was all glass fronted, big mat space, a cage, a ring. You know, and I, I thought, oh God, now it's all going commercial, you know. Mm. But anyway, it was still the only place to train in Bangkok. <laughs> so, so I, but when I came over the next time and actually went to it, I was like, nah, this is pretty cool. <laughs> this is actually pretty cool. It was air-conned for a start. And it was like, oh God, air-con is actually really nice. And a really lovely big uh, mat space with no pillars. I have a real thing about pillars being yeah. on the mats. I hate that. Um, I mean, it's bad for sight line. You know, it's annoying to have a class where, yeah. you know, you've got that in a way, but also really annoying when you're rolling. Um, but also they had these lovely flexi roll mats that were just, these mats, I mean, they're oh, the right, ones yeah, we, yeah. we train on now, but so they've lasted a long time, but just so nice and soft. And I was yeah, used yeah, to being right. on like judo mats in Myanmar okay, or, yeah. or puzzle but, mats, yeah, yeah. like kind of hard. Before that, we used to train on a hard studio floor in a gym. <laughs> um, so bruised. these were just, yeah, <laughs> like so bruised. And so uh, this was just like heaven, actually, and I loved it. And then they moved from that site because it was very expensive in this shopping center. It was kind of dumb, like being there. It just wasn't really working. Um, and they moved sensibly to a spot in a cross fit gym which was a bit further out which was a, a big kind of warehouse style crossfit gym that um was just huge and they they kind of uh, gave up like a third maybe of the of the whole warehouse to fight lab mm. and then fight lab paid obviously paid them rent um and actually i really liked that place it was cool but they had, as you walked in it was kind of this reception area that was just perfect to have a little cafe and they did they had a kind of little bar and they did a few I don't know what they did. They had a few juices or something or coffees and then they had a fridge. And I, I, every time I go there, I'd be like, oh, it's such a waste. Like someone could be really like running a proper cafe here. Mm. You know, and I think that's what everyone wants, right? They want to go to the gym and have their little more. People want more than just a juice bar or just like a place where they can get a coffee. Um, but the, the people who ran that clearly didn't want to do it themselves, but also wouldn't, you know, wouldn't allow us to, to do any of that. So... Um, it was, I found it frustrating, but also I wasn't quite in it at a time when I could do that anyway. Um, I was still living in Myanmar, um, but I just wanted to move to Bangkok. Then I left to go to the UK that summer and Joe Dondrewen rang me while I was in the UK and said, look, we found a new spot for a new yoga studio, a bigger one, but it's almost too big, like just for yoga. And um, we'd like to take it on, but only if we can turn half of it into a cafe, but we only want to do that if you'll come back and and help us 
So I said, only if you let it be vegan, <laughs> because I'd just gone vegan. So I was like, well, this does sound like a good opportunity. I would like to do it, but only if you let it be vegan. And they were very good. They were like, well, all right, we'll see. But only if you agree that if it doesn't work as vegan, that you'll let it be vegetarian. <laughs> so I had to give that concession. Um, luckily, we managed to make it work vegan. Um, and it's um, so I went back out there. We started it. We opened it up. It got pretty successful fairly quickly. And then um, once it was really up and running and we had staff and it didn't really need me to be there all the time, I, I then did what I said I was going to do, which was move to Bangkok. Mm. And by that point, roughly around the same time, Morgan had then decided to leave training ground and he'd found this spot where we are sitting right now. Um, and it was just a kind of ramshack kind of falling down those buildings out the back that were just falling down and then this part that we're sitting in now where the cafe is was kind of more of a building um but yeah just derelict and uh it was kind of a big move but morgan just wanted to be on his own he didn't want to be having to share space and uh, i really understood that and it was a kind of a cool little area i mean like it, the, half the stuff that's going on now in this area wasn't here but you could feel that it was coming yeah because it was already kind of a nice little area and people were saying that lots of teachers were living here and stuff um and so i did say to morgan like hey when i'm ready can i build a cafe here and he was like yes <laughs> so, um yeah we had to get the gym finished first but then um once the gym was fully finished um we were able to start on the cafe and that's a whole other story and super boring but involved like nightmare contractors and <laughs> but you know it's never easy building stuff and mm. uh, we got it done in the end so why on your um trip back to the uk had you decided to become vegan um well actually i was it was i went vegan when i was actually in bangkok i kind of leaving Myanmar. i just came to bangkok just for a few months um i i uh, had separated from the guy that i was with and mm. so i just sort of escaped if you like to right. bangkok um because i knew i'd be going back to the uk in a few months and i uh, just wanted to really test out living in bangkok and see what i could do to earn a living and things um and um i was already vegetarian i'd gone kind of back to being a proper vegetarian but um my sister just rang me i don't know we were just on a call and she was like oh yeah by the way <laughs> a few months ago we went vegan and she'd made her 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 husband go vegan too i know that's wrong i shouldn't say made her husband go vegan because he totally was on board but i think to begin with he was a bit like oh, i'll be mostly vegan and still eat me occasionally which is he did for a while but then he just realized as well and like you know he went vegan too mm. um and they were just loving it and they just like understood you know they just watched enough videos and understood it was kind of the the most sensible way forward mm. um for lots of reasons you know i mean there's there's arguments about the health you know i'm not gonna i don't of course that, that is what we preach here more in the cafe and i i don't doubt a vegan diet can be healthy but really i just think eating more vegetables is certainly um, yeah. irrefutably more healthy um but for him it, it it tended to be a little bit to begin with more of the environmental impact for her it was more the ethical impact and then sooner or later it just becomes everything right it's like you you, you remain vegan for all reasons yeah <laughs> um but yeah so i just sort of felt like well if they were going vegan and they'd gone from like staunch carnivore <laughs> straight to vegan and um I, do you know what, thinking about it, the only reason I wasn't really vegan anyway was because, well, apart from the fact that, you know, I enjoyed cheese and butter and stuff, but uh, it was more because 
truthfully, even going vegetarian came with its own problems, you know, as far as people's opinions and like, you know, the kind of flack and the questions you had to answer and like defending your yeah. position all the time. Yeah. And I was kind of sick of that anyway, but at least I could say like, oh, but I am vegetarian. So when people talk about protein, it's like, well, I am, you know, I, I went through a pescatarian phase as well. And people were like, so why do you eat fish then? And it's like, well, you know, because I, uh, I'm not prepared to to go that far for my health thinking that you know you needed something to make mm. some animal product to make you healthy um but really thinking this is just to shut you up because i know that's your question yeah. i know that you're going to be like oh it's unhealthy to yeah. not eat animal products and because i don't want to have that conversation and that argument you know i'll, I'll happily just continue doing it mm. it's stupid it's so dumb but like yeah, it's quite funny that um, I think vegans, probably vegetarians as well, get quite a stigma for like being quite preachy. Yeah. But as someone who's been vegetarian all my life, like I've, I don't think I've ever tried to persuade anyone to be vegetarian. But every meat, everyone ever meat that's like takes it, you know, somehow finds out I'm vegetarian, seems to have have about at least two, three, sometimes a lot more hypothetical situations where yeah. what would you eat meat if, or, you know. <laughs> you oh, want to desert yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then some kind of, yeah, um, they always seem to be the more preachy ones on at least my experience of it. So I, I don't know where the stereotype yeah. comes from and stuff, but. No, I mean, I suppose, it, I, yeah, I don't, well, I do know where it comes from. It comes from because the, the, the ones that are preachy are the loudest. <laughs> so they kind of, yeah, then everyone starts thinking that all vegans are like that. But the thing is, I, I, I am a bit preachy in that if people want to have the conversation, I'll have the conversation with them. But I certainly don't feel like I go around like trying to turn people vegan. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if anything, I just try to do it by example. I just try to provide really good food so people can see that vegan food is, is tasty and satiating and healthy. Um, and also just by trying to just be a nice person and be, you know, good, you know, not, not be a dick. Mm. <laughs> um, so that I'm not being tarred with that brush of like, oh, yeah, all vegans are dicks. Um, I don't know. It's really hard. And uh, it's as with everything, it's all a learning curve. And like, you know, I have some amazing vegan friends here in Bangkok who do a lot of activism. And I wasn't sure if I kind of wanted to go down that path to begin with, but I, I went to one of the things that they do, which is the anonymous for the voiceless cube of truth. Um, I kind of, I used to go to a sixth form college that was quite drama oriented and did a lot of theater work and stuff. Um, not, I wasn't so big on the actual acting. I was kind of preferred the, the directing and the backstage stuff, but, but I did do a fair amount of kind of um, bits and pieces. And um, the, the drama of it kind of appealed to me. You know, you have to wear black, you wear the mask and you're showing footage, like really extreme footage. And it's quite regimented. The guy who came up with it, he's quite, he understood how, how to have the biggest impact um, in a passive way. You know, yes, it's, it's not passive, like showing people horrible slaughterhouse footage, but they don't have to look at it. It's not like they're being forced to look at it. And you don't, you're not grabbing people in the street and like shoving leaflets in their hands or like mm. telling them that they should be watching this or you're just standing there. You're standing there. But the thing is, because you're dressed in black with the anonymous uh, mask on, it's uh, it looks kind of compelling and interesting as people see it from afar. Then when they get closer and wonder what it is and they start to look at the screens and they see what it is, they can choose to look away and walk on and no one is gonna 
look at them or talk to them or stop them or anything. Or they can stand and watch it and only when they've stood and watched the footage and look like they're interested and perhaps would like to talk to someone, will someone approach them. So it's really passive. And then even when you're approached, it's very much on a kind of just trying to have a conversation. That's that's all the aim is. It's not like trying to convert vegans or trying yeah. to... All you're really trying to do is get people to have that... that um, cognitive shift where they where they kind of make a connection between the food that they eat and where it comes from and um the footage is pretty horrific i have to say like mm. it's hard as an outreach person to actually watch it to stand and watch it yeah. with them i often have to kind of while the people i'm talking to are watching it i have to kind of look over the screen and try to not look at the screen because it's just i can't I, then i kind of lose all track of what i'm doing so it's mm. just so horrifying um but you just want to try to engage people in conversations and ask them if they've seen stuff like this before, whether or not they know what it is. You know, often people think that it's very specific to certain countries or certain farms or certain practices. And then only when you tell them that this happens everywhere in the world now, you know, because of the number of people that we need to feed. Um, it's uh, that's sometimes shocking to people, you know, especially you get people from all over the world stopping here in Bangkok, of course, and like, most people would love to think it doesn't happen in their country <laughs> and that this footage must be from wherever europe america somewhere else um, but we have footage now from everywhere in the world including thailand and uh it's it's pretty much all the same you know it's barbaric like no matter where it is um and uh yeah it's just really interesting engaging in conversation and here in thailand i know it's different in some places in the world like in I, we've heard from people that are here on holiday and join us that when they do it back home in places like Manchester, for instance, they get spat at, sworn mm. at, like stuff thrown at them. Like it's just insane. Here, never get that. Like we have one guy walk past us kind of angry at some point, and it turned out that he was actually a, a um, uh, owned a farm or something. I can't remember what his role was, but he was in farming. So of course he's going to be defensive. Um, but even he didn't stop to argue with us. He just kind of walked past annoyed, like holding his hands up in the air. You know, it's like, oh, stop and talk to us then. Like, tell us your side. Like, we're open to hearing your side. If you don't think that this is the truth, if you don't think that this happens everywhere, come and tell us about it, you know, because this isn't made up, you know, this footage. That's often people's argument is, oh, it's propaganda. This is like, this is footage from certain places. You're always going to show the worst footage. And there's plenty of farms that you know, don't behave like this. And of course, we know that. We, we know that. But this isn't made up footage. It, it happens everywhere. And it is terrible. And it's at the extreme end. But then show me like a humane slaughterhouse where there isn't really sentient beings who are you know know what's going on mm. like they understand and it's uh yeah i don't think that you know regardless of whether the bolt in the head works or whether the slitting of the throat is the kind of way to do it or whatever whether there's just it's just, yeah. there's no humane way to do it yeah i mean the death itself is is um just like a small part of the story in a way it's the way they're treated and the way they live uh, for the uh, well, in some cases, short time, and sometimes you know longer. Um, that that really gets me more than anything. Um, yeah. For me, like I think I've said to you before, if I was going to eat eat meat, I would I'd prefer it to be a being a uh, animal wild. that was wild, yeah. and had been hunted, yeah. um, rather than something that had lived in a 
a cage or a you know like a pen how, how, however they keep in these animals yeah because exactly. um, yeah maybe the the death isn't as quick or something but at least it has years of actually living a normal life yeah but the problem is again like because there's just so many people that want to consume so much meat that it's just yeah. not not very viable to do, do that it's not at all viable yeah. it's completely unsustainable that's yeah. what annoys me about joe rogan because much as i love him for other reasons he 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 often sort of vilifies vegans a lot right he's quite anti-vegan um even though he's had vegans on the show and he'll give them their say and everything but generally he's pretty disparaging um and his take is like oh do what i do you know take a crossbow out into the the fucking middle of nowhere and shoot an elk which you then take home and you know it feeds you and your family and your friends for like a month it's like who how many people can do that Mm. yeah you know that sounds great but yeah. like there's just very few people on the planet that can do that so yeah. what is his solution yeah. for, for the rest of the population who can't yeah. do that well i guess it'd be good if if there was some kind of you know i guess back in back in the day 100 now however many years ago uh, i guess there'd be like a person that was a hunter that would come back and then they'd give it to a butcher and then instead of having well before i guess modern agriculture and that kind of stuff yeah i mean that's the point i mean it all really boils down to um the fact that there's just too many people yeah. <laughs> to feed but the, the the annoying thing from an environmental point of view as well is that um that so much of the land that's being kind of cleared for either grazing cattle grazing or to grow feed um because we grow a certain type of crop to just feed that crop which yeah. is edible for humans it's generally soy 95 percent of the soy grown in the world gets fed to cattle mm. it makes no sense you know that we do that that we feed yeah. that to the cattle to then just eat the cattle i mm. can't remember what the numbers are but like the kind of calorific ratio right. is unsustainable yeah. it'd be much more sensible to just grow even less soy and still feed the entire world's population with that mm. protein instead yeah and I know there's all kinds of arguments about like amino acids and but anybody there's always a counter to that you know there's there's uh, I mean I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely a, a fan of, of potential lab grown meat you know if, if there is a health benefit to eating meat that you can't find in a plant diet which I don't know that there is but if that is true then great grow meat in the lab and like mm. let's eat that instead yeah <laughs> yeah it's weird that one I don't know if I'd actually be able to you know stomach it in a way like um as i think i've been telling you before as well i tried like jackfruit before mm -hmm. in like a you know burger type form i just it, it tasted so much as i imagine like meat would taste in my head it was like it just i couldn't wrap my head around it and yeah, I wasn't able to eat it in the end yeah. literally been, been vegetarian <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah but i mean i wouldn't even necessarily eat the lab grown meat mm. because i also don't really have a taste for meat anymore but my point is that I advocate it because yeah. that is a solution oh, know, for the people yeah, that yeah. do still want to eat it. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting about Joe Rogan as well is before he said he was going to be a hunter, it was because he watched all those like um, those kind of videos you mentioned about all these horrific situations. And he was either like, well, I'm going to go vegetarian or, or vegan or I'm going to find a way to circumvent, you know, yeah. being part of this. Obviously, he went the down hunting route, which is, I guess, one way to do it. I guess, but yeah, I get yeah, what you I mean, mean. I think that's great for him. Like, mm. I, I don't, I don't have anything against him in the way that he's chosen to to do that. That's awesome. I just, 
what annoys me is that he's sort of advocating it. That's what everyone should do. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just obviously impossible mm. for most people to do that. So, um, yeah, it would make more sense to kind of be rather than sort of bragging about that and like, you know, this is what I do once and everyone do it. It'd be yeah. more sensible to be like, I'm very fortunate to be able to do this, but if you can't, then you should be vegan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you think of the uh, jiu-jitsu community are listening to Joe Rogan's podcast? Oh, I think, I think a lot of people you do. Think? Yeah. I mean, it's, he is still the number one podcast in the world, right? So yeah. I think people from all, from everywhere do. And I, everywhere does, sorry, terrible English. Um, and I think that's also had been partly why, um, you know, MMA and, and BJJ have sort of grown in popularity because his podcast is varied and therefore gets a huge audience. And then, of course, people end up hearing him talk about MMA and BJJ. <laughs> um, yeah, it all helps. Mm. What, what, how long have you been doing jiu-jitsu now? Six years, but I did start and then had to have the two hip operations. Like, right, after. okay. So I kind of, um, I think I started in July 2012 and then Oh, which I guess is coming up to seven years then. But then, but then, I, in total, I've probably had just under a year off. Mm. So yeah, I've been training for maybe six years. Yeah. What do you think? Some uh, I don't think misconceptions is the right word, but things that people don't, might not realise about um, when you're a girl coming up in, in jiu-jitsu, which is kind of a, more of a minority in most places, I guess. Yeah, I mean. Um, I was quite used to being like the only or one of few girls anyway in martial From arts. Wing because, Chun and stuff. Yeah, yeah, in Wing Chun, I was always like either the only girl or, or one of a very few, um, and that's never really bothered me. I've always had like male friends, probably because I have a younger brother, you know, a yeah. brother that's similar age, and I always hung out with guys, and so it never bothered me at all. Um, but yeah, when you get stuck in a small gym like we were in Myanmar, and the guys you're training with are all big <laughs> not just guys but all big guys and all white belts so not able to kind of you know necessarily um reduce their strength and weight to kind of match yours then it's can, it could it was tough but it was also kind of good you know i got used to being pretty uncomfortable <laughs> squished under people mm. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely one reason that I was attracted to Fight Lab was because they te they seemed to, to have the more amount more girls training. There. Yeah, it does seem to be. Um, it is kind of different training with a girl, even if that girl is bigger than a guy you might train with. I don't know why. I still don't really know why. It just feels different, mm. and it could be some psychological stuff going on. Could be that. Um, you know, a guy is going to be trying to reduce his strength to kind of match yours if he's not a dick. <laughs> um, whereas a girl just goes balls out. Right. <laughs> because girls don't, mm. girls generally aren't going to, unless they're kind of high level. I mean, I, uh, there's a friend of mine in the UK who's now a black belt, but when I last trained with her, she was a brown belt. And she's a, probably my size, maybe a little bit bigger or certainly a little bit stronger. You know, she works out more. Um, and she, she didn't go balls out with me, obviously, because she's better. She didn't need yeah. to, you know, but, but 
the, the girls that I train with now are generally all like like less experienced with me. Yeah. So they probably feel like they can just, just try go as hard and, as yeah, they yeah. want. And so it's like, Jesus, okay, we're, <laughs> we're having a fight here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it can be uh, it can be more challenging and more hard work than going with the guys who are mm. kind of like easing off you a little bit in order to kind of make it a bit more fair. Yeah. The girls have got no interest in that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of interesting <laughs> from that point of view, yeah. How's your um, game developed? No, you're uh, you got two stripe purple belt, is it? One, one, one stripe, stripe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just like, I just, I, I suppose one thing I've managed to kind of do more in the last year or so than ever before is just calm down a bit and maybe try to work on uh, um, longevity and, you know, uh, making up for a lack of athleticism as I get older with just a clever technique and just kind of being annoying to the other person to kind mm. of distract them so that they can't play their game. Right. Like, um, I like doing that, but at the same time, and that gets me out of a lot of situations, but at the same time, it, it doesn't make it easy to then be on the offensive and kind of go for submissions and stuff. Because mm. it's, uh, then you need to have really like got great position, set stuff up, you know, Whereas I, I do feel like I play a more defensive game, but I just like, I just have fun with it. I'm not really, I do enjoy competing. Well, I don't want to say I enjoy competing. I, I like the challenge of competing. I like how it focuses your training beforehand. I like the challenge of dealing with the kind of nerves and, and, uh, and the competition day itself and everything like that. But um, I don't, that's not why I do it. You know, <laughs> I'm not trying to win medals. I just really enjoy being in the gym. And I really enjoy like uh, fun puzzles, like training with people where you get that kind of vibe where you're like, oh, good. We can now kind of now I know that you're not trying to kill me and uh, we can just play mm. you know, and just work stuff out. It's body mechanics. It's just kind of interesting to me. Um, and, you know, it's interesting going with people who are trying to kill you, too, to see how, how long you can survive. <laughs> Is there much that you get out of jiu-jitsu that you didn't get out of Wing Chun? Um... Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm just trying to think because like all the main things like the kind of social aspect and the camaraderie and all that, I definitely got that in Wing Chun as well, for sure. Um, But physically, I feel more confident in my BJJ than I ever felt in my Wing Chun. Mm. Um, Like in, in Wing Chun, I would sometimes think, oh, okay, yeah, I seem capable of kind of doing this particular exercise and I seem to be doing it okay. And like, you know, I I feel like I can kind of punch better than most girls who haven't learned how to punch, (laughs) like that kind of thing. Um, But I never really knew whether it was any good, you know, at the end of the day. And when when I thought about actually punching someone, I was like, no, I'm going to break my knuckles. You know, if even if I have a good punch, I'm still going to get hurt. Yeah. And what I love about BJJ is the kind of that's why I love the chokes more than the arm locks and, and the other locks, because I just love the idea that you can actually control a fight and stop a fight or put someone out without even hurting them. Right. Um, yeah, I like lo- I lo- that kind of appeals to me because I'm not I'm not a violent person at heart. I don't mm. think any of us are really. I don't think violent people do BJJ generally. Of course, there's always exceptions. But I think if you have like a real aggression and violence in you, you go and do boxing or Muay Thai mm. or MMA. And I think Jiu Jitsu tends to kind of have the people who enjoy a bit of a, a bit of a 
tussle. <laughs> but they don't really want to hurt hurt anyone. Mm. Um, and that is also what sometimes can make competition hard for some people because they they enjoy learning jujitsu and the kind of um, the skills involved with it and the, the the puzzles. But when it comes to actually having to be more aggressive and really go for it, is that's where some yeah. people fall down. Yeah. Do you feel like everyone should um, should try and compete? Um, no, I don't think that they should necessarily. I do think that it's really beneficial, and I think that if you do, you will gain something from it. But I don't. I would never push everybody to do it because I think for some people it was just it's almost either too much of a challenge, like psychologically, um, or if they're just not into it, they're just not into it. Like mm. it's fine. You can still get good at jujitsu um, without having to compete. Um, but having said that, I do feel like I gained a lot from doing it myself. And I do think that some people, maybe their reason for not doing it is simply because they're scared of losing or being made to look stupid or something. And I would say generally, A, very few people are made to look stupid in, in jiu-jitsu competition, whether they lose or, or not. Mm. Like, to me, everyone is just like nervous about their own match. And if they're just spectating, they just have respect for anybody going in for it. So. Very few people are made to look stupid. And if you lose, no one fucking cares. Yeah. No one cares. Like, no one even remembers. You know, a few months later, it's like, oh, you competed? Oh, I can't even remember how you did. You know, did you win? Did you lose? No one cares. Yeah. Not at this level anyway, you know. It's like, sure, you're going up and being a, a proper competitive athlete and, like, you know, it's your job. Like, literally, you're getting sponsored and paid. That's just another level, you know, whatever. That's, that's different. Mm. But if you just love learning jiu-jitsu and you're wondering whether or not you should compete, then don't let the fear of losing be the reason you don't do it. What are the um, values that you take from jiu-jitsu um, that help you most in your day-to-day -day life? Um, well, <laughs> uh, I mean, when I'm getting stressed in da daily life, I do jiu-jitsu. Right. <laughs> so it's a great de-stressor from that point of view but I, I guess just generally like the same as any other martial arts tenets right like just um, calm under pressure um, yeah just uh, just not letting like difficult situations kind of get to you they change mm. they don't last forever when I'm when I'm underneath like a bigger heavier guy or girl and feeling stuck I don't tend to struggle too much against it because it's a waste of energy and I just know that they're going to move at some point and they only have to move a little bit for me to be able to move a little bit and that's you know a good way to kind of start an escape and I suppose in a way you could think about that in life you know when the pressure of something is really kind of crushing you like just stay calm and don't try to let it like overwhelm you because sooner or later something changes right yeah that's a cool way to think about it, definitely. Yeah. Oh, that was off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. <laughs> well, um, usually I, I, I learn these with um, asking you about what your perfect day is, but I think I'm going to change that up actually and ask you uh, just tell me about at any point in your life, I'll let you have quite a broad scope on this one, but just a, an embarrassing story or, or moment. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you, like, what the. Well, there's two. There's two. 
Uh, one is that when I was quite young, maybe only 18 or 19, I hadn't been driving for very long. I'd parked my car in a multi-story car park. And then when I got in with my sister and reversed out, I just did a really bad job and basically like scraped the car next to me really badly. And I was so scared about the kind of consequences and everything, but I just drove off. Oh no. And I didn't like leave my name, number, try to find the owner or anything. And, you know, that's not good, obviously. And I'm embarrassed about that. But, uh, and I also coerced my sister into staying quiet. I was like, don't you dare tell anybody. In fact, only recently I was telling this story to somebody like in public with her. And she was like, you told me never to tell anyone that story. And I was like, I think enough time has passed. That I can, like, limitations admit it there. now. Like, yeah. um, so that was not good. But then another one is, is a longer story. But I was in South Africa after I'd been working in South Africa for a few months. And then at the end of the trip, just before I was going back to the UK, we were kind of given some time to go off, you know, and, and do a trip somewhere. And we went to the Kruger National Park. This was me and just like this friend that I'd been working with. And uh, we had a car. Had we hired that car or been given it? I can't remember, but it was a car with a um, an anti, what's it called when you have to like, is it anti-lock? No, when you, you've got to kind of press a button before the key will turn, like okay. the ignition yeah. gets, you know, locked. So there were a few things happened in the Kruger National Park in this car. <laughs> One was that this guy persuaded me to go off track down where you're not supposed to go so that we could go and look at hippos or something. And while we were down there looking at hippos on a, in a bit where we shouldn't have been, um, we didn't want to get out of the car to change seats. So we tried to change driver and passenger inside the car and accidentally pressed the horn really loud. Right at this like where there's like hippos <laughs> and all this wildlife everywhere. Like that was pretty embarrassing. And like, but luckily no one went around really to see it. Um, we hope. Um, but then on the same trip, two other things happened. I'm trying to think of the third one, but then <laughs> the one, oh yeah, that's right. So yeah, so one of them was that we also came up behind a car on one of the uh, roads that had stopped and we didn't know why he'd stopped because we were looking to see whether he had stopped to see anything and we couldn't see anything so we just thought well, maybe he's just stopped so i slowly went to overtake him and it wasn't until i was like right up on his flank that we saw them in the window like making gestures down onto the ground mm. and basically i drove straight over a massive iguana but not oh. I, he was fine oh, like right. i drove <laughs> over him but like we looked back oh, and okay, he was right, fine right, right. but yeah essentially we had just like <laughs> just gone what? like driven right over this iguana and then the third incident in this one week <laughs> was um where everybody had stopped to watch some elephants by the side of the road and then everybody started driving off and we were the last car and we realized that everyone was driving off because they were about to cross the road and you don't want to be like just in your car on the road when a herd of elephants like crosses and so we tried to as well but we this bloody locket we were like panicking and forgetting that you had to like do this thing with the yeah. key to get the key to turn um and so we were kind of like left behind as the elephants had already started crossing we were like fumbling around faffing, faffing around with the key yeah so <laughs> i can't think of anything i mean god my god i definitely have way more embarrassing stories but they were not they're not ones that will ever make the light of day <laughs> fair enough okay tommy well thank you very much for your time cool. for sharing the story thanks t it's great having you here at the gym we're gonna miss you a lot yeah i'm sure i'll be back at some point awesome, awesome. cheers tommy Thank you.